You guys may be seated. Thank you for having me out today. Good morning to you. My name is uh, Pastor Gabe Colangelo. And um, as I read the uh, bulletin here, I saw that a former church member of mine who actually asked if I would come out in his place was uh, set to speak. And as I looked at his topic, it reminded me uh, of a talk that was given and people were invited to come and hear a speaker who had become a millionaire in the housing market. And as people came to listen, the guy was announced, he got up and he said, uh, actually, um, that wasn't uh, the person announced, uh, that's not me, it's my brother. And it wasn't the housing market, market, it was the stock market. And he didn't make millions, he lost millions. So, in a sense, uh, what Rudy's going to speak about to do, perhaps I will address what not to do. Um, but my title, or yeah, this title this morning is Christianity, Community, and Communion. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, start in verse 17. So you could turn your Bibles there. This is a famous passage, one that's often read uh, anytime the communion table is offered or opened up. And we sometimes uh, put a lot of attention and emphasis on the Lord's Supper, on his, on his table, on coming forward of having our hearts uh, right before God. Um, but what we often sometimes forget is the uh, context that Paul's writing it, that he's addressing a church, uh, a body, a body that's supposed to proclaim God's unity and God's oneness, and yet there's diversity and separation. So 1 Corinthians, we'll start in 1 Corinthians 11, start in verse 17. Uh, let's bow our hearts in prayer briefly before we do. Father, open your word to our heart, to our minds. May it uh, challenge us, may it grow us, may it edify us, in Christ's name, amen. So Paul here, dealing with the church in Corinth, in verse 17, says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not the Lord's Supper. For in eating, one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Do you, what? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be will guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastised by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will send in order, set in order, when I come. The word of the Lord. Amen. So as we, again, look at this rather large passage, we can see Paul's kind of getting at a bigger overarching issue here. Uh, there, there's divisions in the church. There's a lack of order in the church. And so my topic today is hopefully you kind of to maybe not present uh, all these things in a new way, but perhaps in a cohesive way of how uh, the terms Christianity, how the idea of community and communion kind of are all intertwined. So unfortunately, if you ask three different people, however, what they mean by the terms uh, Christianity or community or communion, you'll often get four different answers. You know, you have more answers than people often uh, by these terms. And in fairness, all of these terms are rather complex terms with a vast array of complex meanings and usages. Uh, the purpose, as I said, of this sermon isn't so much to address them uh, in a new way, but in a, in a biblical way. Um, that by the end of the sermon, uh, we will kind of see how these concepts are really just intertwined all throughout the New Testament and really all throughout Scripture. So the first term, I think it's safe to say, is uh, an easy one. I think Christianity, that's a term, or we could say is a, it's a religion or a religious system built around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, as you know, and probably have met, there's a lot of Christians today who will say, well, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And so even uh, uh, for those people, I doubt there are many here, uh, that would be a topic for another time, uh, but just follow the thought process through, right? Scripture itself defines in the book of James, sure religion, so we shouldn't shy away from the term. It's rather, what is true religion? And as Christians, we believe that Christianity is the true expression of, of religion, of the worship of God, of putting things uh, that are spiritual in the proper state and in the proper context. Now, this next term, community, is often uh, defined as, in many different ways, but just a dictionary de definition, it would be a social, religious, or occupational, or other group sharing characteristics or interests 
and perceived or perceiving itself as distinct in some respect from the larger society within it exists socially and communally. So that's more of just like a Webster's definition, but it's not bad. There's some key elements in there that I think we definitely see in Scripture. So in this Christian sense, we see our common characteristics are defined by Christ. We could look to perhaps the Sermon on the Mount. We could look in the Old Testament to the law of God, really to all of Scripture. And we could see that uh, there's a picture here of God's nature. There's a picture of God's goodness, his justice. And so our interests then become the worship of God and the love of neighbor, as Christ himself taught. We are, in this sense, right, in the church, distinct from the world. This is what baptism signifies. It distinguishes us from the world by giving us the mark of Christ, in which is both a sign and seal of God's promise of salvation. This is probably nothing new to us, right? But as we kind of define these terms, we're trying to, as I said, kind of put it all together, if we will. So let's look at this last term, one we're probably very familiar with as Christians, and that is communion. So communion can have a few basic meanings. It can refer, refer to the Lord's Supper that we partake of uh, every month or once a quarter. I'm not sure how you guys do it, but the idea is, you know, different churches and have, do it in different frequencies and different ways. And But there's a sense of when we hear that term, it immediately goes to the bread and wine and uh, symbolizing Christ and his supper and spiritual meaning behind it, right? So it also, uh, that that's kind of a metaphorical usage, but communion can also be defined broadly and socially as an act of sharing or uh, to share, right, with those with whom we have an intimate fellowship or rapport with. This could be religious or non-religious in nature. However, this final definition can really only be seen in a religious kind of context, and that is, quote, a body of Christians having a common faith and discipline. So this is not only perhaps a dictionary definition, but but a scriptural one. We as believers celebrate the Lord's Supper because it represents for us a common unity, right? A common faith, a common discipline or practice that we do. So now that we've kind of just defined those basic terms, let us now kind of see how we can put these within a biblical worldview and framework. Uh, but before we go further, I want to just define one other term, which may be familiar to you, and this is the Greek term uh, for community, ekklesia, sometimes pronounced ecclesia, common nomenclature. But this term is applied to the local community of believers in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, it's applied to God's people, right? So when the people of God would gather, whether that be in the Old Testament or in the New, this is, uh, in the Old Testament, it was the synagogues, and here for us in the New Testament is in the local church. This would be a, a term which would represent that gathering. In ancient Greece, it would be even used to uh, refer to an assembly of citizens or even a political gathering similar to Congress. So if our Congress would assemble, we would say that's the, you know, the gathering of Congress. Um, 
But as in a Christian sense, as one author notes, quote, what then did the New Testament writers mean when they used the term ecclesia to describe a Christian body of people? We can assume they intended to convey the original Greek meaning of the word, a body of Christians called out of the Roman Judean system come together into a separate civil community. It meant political, a politically autonomous body of Christians under no king but Jesus and under no other jurisdiction but that of Jesus. No man ruled them, only Christ. And that was the reason these same Christians ran into trouble with kings and rulers, were arrested, crucified, and martyred. They dropped Caesar as their king and took up Christ. End of quote. So we see then this biblical definition of community or of ecclesia is one in which we have a common core of beliefs and is held as a common rule of law that is really binding upon those who are in mutual submission under the rule of Christ. This definition, however, kind of challenges our popular notion of community. We usually hear people refer to community in a sense of outreach to those who live in a certain proximity of where the church gathers, as if the community is something outside of the church. It's very common to hear things expressed like, we need to do more outside the four walls of the church, or we need to do more for the community. I'm sure we could all relate to hearing things like that throughout the years. And while these statements hold a real issue that I think each church may need to address, we need to be careful about wording it in such a way, since the improper use of terms is often what's led to many false concepts and doctrines and practices to grow up within the church. In this instance, it's not just doing things outside of the church that is bad or even not needed, but rather it's referring to the community as though it's something out there, something other than here. The community properly defined is within the group or gathering of believers. It is us as we come together. It is within these walls, at least on Sunday morning. It stands out from there, but we shouldn't shy away from recognizing that we are a community. We are God's community. We are God's people. We have a common unity. So as we think of community, let us think of that common unity, hence community, and that's ultimately what makes us a community is Christ. We have a common unity in Christ. We are the church, as the scripture calls us, the bride of Christ. Uh, the elect is royal priesthood. Whatever other biblical metaphor you want to use, this is the language that scripture is trying to over and over get us to see and relate to ourselves. And oftentimes we miss it, right? Or, or we fail to emphasize it or properly live it out. Um, and it's important to understand, sometimes, as I said, I, each church is different and each uh, congregation and perhaps denomination or even churches within denominations see these things and struggle with these things and have people within their churches that have desires for these things. But we'll all at some point come across the naysayers, if you will, who, and the skeptics or critics of the church, both from within and from without the church, that will say things such as, why are there so many churches and yet so many homeless people? Why are there so many people on drugs or so much crime with so many churches? Not to make light of our societal obligation for justice, which I believe is a true biblical concern for the church, but these answers 
and, and these uh, naysayers, the, the answers to these questions are, are quite simple. And my answer would be this, and I think the scriptural answer would be this. If these people are, are ultimately in this state, not, uh, uh, or at least in part, because they're not part of the church community. They're not part of that Christian community. If a homeless person were part of that community, he would find food and clothing and shelter. This is not to say the church's main concern is right for handouts. It's not. But I've never met a church whose people didn't want to help those in need. I've never met a church who turned away a drug addict who wanted help. I've never met a church whose members tolerated crime amongst its people. So the foundations for homelessness and drug addiction and crime are are the topic of countless sermons and political discussions and perhaps policies that have been enacted. But if any of these issues are to be addressed, it really has to start within the four walls of the church uh, and work its way out from there, right? We're never going to uh, solve things by legislating them or by somehow trying to uh, do more to, you know, bring about the kingdom and solve all these issues. Uh, We have to recognize that God has called us first and foremost to have that common unity in him, be that common unity in him and call people into that. So the church affects change ultimately by modeling a difference. This is in part what I think Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. We give outward testimony to a hurt and dying world that living a life in which we do right, as Peter says, uh, conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that Though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And while our behavior may never silence all the critics, because they're hardened hearts ultimately, we can live as we are called to within our own community, knowing we answer to God and not man. Now, if what I'm saying is true, we must then ask, where did this misdefinition of community come from? And I don't want to spend too, too much time on this, but the answer uh, is quite vast. Um, there, there was an economist, perhaps some of you know him by name, uh, Murray Rothbard. He wasn't a uh, Christian. He was actually a, a Jewish kind of uh, libertarian uh, economist. But in his writings, he, he, in this long article he wrote called The Origins of the Welfare State, he kind of ties this thinking around the turn of the century to what he called post-millennial piety. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the OPC as a denomination kind of formulates out of this kind of controversy, out of the modernist controversy of what the role of the church is, right, of, of modernism uh, and kind of this, maybe not the conservative liberal dynamic we would think of today, but kind of what really is the gospel, what really is the church's role, right? And so Rothbard, who's kind of just writing from a historical perspective, uh, kind of talks about how, you know, around the turn of the century, there was uh, this mindset that was more theologically liberal in nature. And so we shouldn't confuse it with perhaps Puritan postmillennialism or even modern day postmillennialism, but this mindset um, that started to see the church's task as social rather than spiritual in nature. So feeding up, uh, feeding the homeless, setting up homeless shelters, uh, 
advocating for voting rights and better working conditions, etc., became the work of the church, and even the call of the gospel in many of these mainline denominations. To them, the millennium was something that would be brought about through Christian social action rather than a literal coming of Christ to earth. In one sense, you could say they saw this not just as like a social outreach, but as a social gospel, social justice, as it's now commonly called. But you could actually say that they saw that as their spiritual duty. So it's not as though they were denying spiritual, they just, in their mindset, this was the task of the church to bring about the kingdom of God on earth by the eradication of poverty and all these different things. So again, it's not to say that these, uh, some of these societal intervention, uh, inventions uh, weren't good things. I doubt many of us would want to go back to uh, a workday that wasn't eight hours, perhaps, right? Um, but ultimately, as I said before, um, we can't confuse the church's action with and that the action it takes with the totality of the gospel, right? These uh, post-millennial pietists, as Rothbard called them, would see such things as the eradication of poverty being the true spiritual work of the church and would work tirelessly to see the church involved in uh, the society at large, especially in the inner cities. With this view of Christian community being separate and distinct from the society at large, Biblical doctrine began to be blurred. Later, this would lead to political action and government seeking to bring about solution of these ills through uh, government policies rather than the local church. The Great Depression put a damper on the hope that the church, through social action, would solve all these problems on its own. But if this post-millennial hope of a utopian, utopian society was going to be realized, it would have to not only be through the church, but through the central government. So you start to see a merger here, at least in thought of kind of cooperating with the government to bring about the kingdom. So the New Deal of uh, FDR was seen by many Protestants and even uh, many Roman Catholics as kind of a godly government. Uh, one popular priest at the time named Charles Rice said, Quote, a victory for labor and its struggles for decent conditions is a victory for Americanism and Christianity. This is kind of the time in part where maybe you guys probably wondered this. How, how did the Roman Catholic Church to begin to lean so heavily democratic when they're against uh, all of these perhaps Catholic doctrines like, you know, abortion and birth control and same-sex marriage and all this, and yet many lean this way. And this is kind of the origins of that, the the psyche of uh, many, not only Roman Catholics, but even many Christians um, are sometimes loyal to the left because of Christian notion of loving your neighbor, helping the poor. Uh, and perhaps we see this more today than ever before in political rhetoric. People, in a certain sense, try, everybody wants Jesus on their side, right? Even if they don't believe in Jesus, even if they don't go to church, they want to quote Jesus or quote the Bible to somehow back their view. So you'll you rarely see a politician say, well, the Bible's wrong. Even if they don't, even if they're an atheist, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm actually being more uh, uh, consistent in, in, in my policies of, of the Bible than you are, right? And so they try to always appeal to the Bible because they know many people, at least in word, will say, I believe the Bible or I'm a Christian and they attempt to obviously sway votes. But 
the fact that many of the policies of the left are anti-Christian are often overlooked since the social gospel is preeminent. Also, since many now don't go to church services on Sunday, the focus of their Christianity becomes doing good to their neighbors, or at least not doing bad to their neighbors. Many of these people self-identify as Christians, as we probably know, even if they're not involved in a local church or any type of ministry. They'll say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I don't need these things, right? I pray on my own. But thus, for, for them, uh, community involvement doesn't become around the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper or gathering with uh, the church. It rather becomes of giving blood to Red Cross or perhaps coaching a little league team. So rather than being called out to repentance for their lack of reverence and worship towards God, these people tend to look at themselves as actually better Christians than those who just go to church and in their minds do nothing. Now, my intent this morning isn't to make this political. We can just as easily call out the right for their overemphasis on patriotism or conflating America with Old Testament Israel, etc., etc. But my primary goal this morning is to kind of put us in this scriptural mindset of the true Christian communion, which, as I said, is found only in our common unity in Christ and through his spirit. So communion is at the heart of the Christian life. When we say we are going to partake in communion, we are not just doing an act of remembrance or spiritual activity by which grace is imparted to us through faith in Christ. And I know there's many nuances of the Lord's Supper in each tradition, which may differ, but the application by which I'm addressing this will, I think, be relevant to all. And that's when we partake in uh, communion at church or the Lord's Supper, we are not just uh, practicing some type of spiritual exercise in faith or uh, just proclaiming him dying for our sins or even proclaiming his return for his people, which the scripture says um, all these things, that we proclaim his death until he comes. But we, uh, we also see this, this keeping of power of his people till the second advent, until that time uh, of his return, we're ultimately to commune with him and his people. And what we often forget, or many forget, is it is often by means of his people that we commune with God. The worship and praise of God is not usually an individual thing in Scripture, but rather a corporate. We proclaim our unity with Christ through communion, and also we recognize our communion with each other during this time. So as we think back to the text in which we read of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's main concern here in this epistle to the Corinthians was that the believers were walking up to communion without, uh, or I should say, uh, what Paul's not writing this as we often think to say, you know, did they have rows and uh, were there elders at the front serving like we did uh, as we do today? Uh, each each context is written different, right? But I don't think so much he's getting at this uh, idea of. Um, it's, you need to say a prayer of, of confession before you come up before this time. Those are, uh, that is good, right? We're, it, we should pray and, and not be in sin before we come up. But he's focused it on communion here, representing the unity with each other 
and it was supposed to represent that they were united in Christ. However, because they were not communing in this common unity, but rather the rich were eating and getting drunk without the poor, uh, thus they were partaking in this unworthy manner. In a certain sense, they were partaking in a worthless act that would bring about judgment rather than blessing. And he says in uh, 21 and 22, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you dis- do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So he's, he's concerned here for the larger context of unity, of community, of the church being one. It, it's fine if the rich are to go home after church and before uh, uh, perhaps watching the Super Bowl or, or hopefully coming back here this evening for the evening service that you were to grill up some some great ribeyes and you have the means to do so to eat them. Paul sees no problem with that. What Paul sees a problem with is putting a few ribeyes there and perhaps giving me one and a few of the elders ones and the rest of you guys just get some puncher crackers on the way out. Right? And we're sitting back there saying, don't disturb us. So, so there's disunity. There's not a, a community here as we eat and as we gather. And Paul then goes on to say one thing that is unfortunate, I think, largely been missed or misinterpreted over the years. And in verse 29, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the Lord's body, or some translations will just say body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And where I think our minds go as good reformed thinkers is to take the Lord's supper seriously, right? And that people would not come up here and, uh, take a piece of the bread without first confessing their sin, as I mentioned, or perhaps uh, that their lives would be in order before coming up and partaking in communion in an unworthy manner. Um, And usually we think of this act as solely personal, but I I think what we see in this text is it's, it's very corporate in nature that it's not just about having sin in one's life, although in a sense we'll see it is because there is the sin in people's lives that are causing this disunity, but it's not about just perhaps this private sin, but about public sin that's causing disunity and actually bringing judgment on certain people. And so I think when it's talking about not discerning the Lord's body or the body, He's not saying you fail to recognize uh, sometimes, uh, you know, if you came from a Roman Catholic background, it's literally the body and blood of Christ, right? So, of course, you have to do this in a worthy manner because if you're putting uh, the very body and blood of Christ into your body with sin, this would cause some unholy mixture. But I don't think Paul's thinking here is around that. He's trying to draw them to the attention that not of the the bread, perhaps the bread, the bread re- represents this symbolically, but it's the body, it's the people. It's us here who are gathered together. So as they walk up and take a piece of the bread, which is supposed to represent Christ's body, us, and we tear off a piece, or sometimes people break it or it's already broken for us, but the idea is that we're saying we are one part, right? One member of one big body. And so Paul's 
wanting to say you, you're proclaiming you're a piece of this body, uh, but you're, you've failed to discern the rest of the body because you're eating and drinking and not discerning the poor and those who are in need. And so you're saying, yes, I'm a part of the body. I have a common unity with Christ and my fellow brothers. And yet you don't. Paul's driving that. They, they're, they're, they're proclaiming a falsity. They're coming up to the tup, supper, proclaiming unity, proclaiming oneness, proclaiming they have everything together in Christ. And that's why we often see in Acts that came and had all things in common. So they're proclaiming that in taking the Lord's Supper, but they're gossiping about each other, perhaps. They're, they're despising the poor, perhaps. There's, uh, others, there's some people who aren't talking to others, and there's division that God does not want for his people. Thus, ultimately, we God asks us to judge our conduct towards our neighbors before we take communion, before we come here, sing hymns and proclaim this common unity. Because if we're not in communion with them, then we're proclaiming a lie at the Lord's table, really not in communion with God, because we can't love God who we don't see if we don't love our neighbor who we do see, James says. Thus, we cannot have a right relationship with God if our relationships are not right with our fellow believers. So lastly, we must conclude that our Christianity is largely defined by how we define both communion and community. If we see either communion or community in this kind of incorrect way that I spelled out at the beginning, um, the church in the 21st century will continue to be stifled by the world and hopelessly frustrated with our lack of progress. Progress shouldn't be defined by just how many homeless are or aren't on the streets. As Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. Rather, the church must once again focus on the gospel community, on the proclamation of the gospel message, on knowing that only this message will bring revival. Only the gospel can bring repentance. Now, we don't want to truncate the gospel and, and simply just say, every all you need to know about the Bible is Jesus died. And you'll meet a lot of people in the world that kind of truncate the gospel there. That's all they know, and they think they know everything about the Bible. Well, Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner, but his blood forgives me, and that's it. That's all I need to know. I don't need to go to Sunday school. I don't need to go to church. I, I just understand that one concept. right? So we don't want to truncate the gospel, but we must remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Good works and social action should follow as God, godly response of our faith, but usually this will be modeled for us in our communities where we learn, we grow, challenge, equip, exhort, and commune with each other in the faith. Now, if you're in Southern California, most of you guys are very busy. A lot of you guys have jobs, families. If you're older, perhaps some grandkids to watch. If you're younger, social media accounts to attend to. So we all got lives that are busy, right? That, that keep us and take our focus from perhaps being part of that community that Christ calls us to. But if we're going to move forward as a local body of believers, and if the church is going to move forward as a universal body of believers, we must put our Christianity first, which ultimately you hear people say that God is number one. You know, my faith is the most important thing to me, but what this 
means in actuality is we put our Christian community first, which means we must commune together and worship together as often as possible. We need each other because we need God, and God is present with us here to his glory and in the praises of his people. And so as I close this morning, I pray that Sovereign Grace OPC here will ultimately be a bastion of that community. May you be faithful to God and let him sort out the rest. Now more than ever, we need faithful Christians who will not let secondary matters such as politics, pop culture, all these things that we hear about uh, get in the way of church family, especially with in the past few years, you know, with, with the COVID pandemic, it's really driven churches apart and the Christians apart and people to all different types of thinking until where fellowship is broken. But this shouldn't be. The very essence of the gospel message is at stake. For if we get this idea of community and communion wrong, we really miss the big picture of our faith. And I think all of us want to hear on that final day when we stand before the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So may we not only take our own faith seriously, may we not only take our family's faith seriously, but may we see uh, our faith being represented to God, to our, our families, but also to the larger community, our church uh, family that God has called us together with. May we use our time, our talents, our energy, all that we have to uh, glorify God in that way, that we may, uh, as a body, truly stand before him in worship, and may he be glorified by that worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. I pray that, uh, as I shared, that uh, those who are here uh, may be encouraged to put into practice uh, either things in their own life, maybe things in their corporate life, maybe things in their family and friends, uh, the life of that that is off. So may you challenge us all to work out our differences, if there are even those. May we be united in you as we come and we sing songs to you as we pray before you, as we gather in fellowship. May we indeed have that common unity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.